Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, a podcast by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Eric Nelson's new documentary, The Cold Blue. The film uses newly restored 4K footage and outtakes from DGA and Oscar-winning director William Wyler's 1944 documentary about the European air war during World War II, The Memphis Bell, a story of a flying fortress, as well as narration from surviving B-17 pilots to pay tribute to both Wyler and the men of the 8th Air Force. The Cold Blue was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to The Cold Blue, Mr. Nelson's filmography includes the documentary features A Gray State, Dinotasia, JFK The Final Hours, Scrapbooks from Hell, The Auschwitz Albums, and Dreams with Sharp Teeth, the movie for television Anne Frank's Holocaust, and episodes of the series Pearl Harbor Declassified, Journal of the Unknown, and Secrets and Mysteries. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Nelson spoke with director Sandra Lacau about filming The Cold Blue. During their conversation, Mr. Nelson discusses his collaboration with composer Richard Thompson to score the film, his desire to remove the barriers from the past by using color footage, and shooting the interviews with the surviving veterans from the 8th Air Force. Well, what a movie. And uh, let me introduce you a little bit to uh, Eric's work. Uh, he is a director-producer. He's the president of Creative Differences. In 2017, Eric produced and directed A&E's feature documentary, A Gray State. In 2005, Nelson produced uh, Nelson produced Warner Herzog's feature, Grizzly Man, which I kind of think in some ways is a prelude to this kind of work that he does. Okay. We'll talk about that. Uh, Herzog's 2008 Oscar-nominated Counters at the End of the World and 2011's doubleheader Herzog's 3D Exploration of Cave of the Forgotten Dreams and the Death Row feature Into the Abyss. Nelson also uh, directed and produced the 2008 documentary, Dreams with Sharp Teeth, and directed and produced the 2012 animated feature, Dinostasia? Dinotasia. Dinotasia. Both A Gray State and Dinotasia are currently streaming on Netflix. So welcome. Thank you. So how should we begin? I think we should begin at the beginning. Uh, how did this project come to be for you? Um, I know that you know you had you had done all of these films and you had made a Gray State, and you then you told me you needed a break. Well, Gray State, the film I did before this, is a very dark ride. It's about an obsessive filmmaker, and the end of the journey is he murders himself, his wife, and his child. It's a really dark piece of work. And after two years of living in that world, I really wanted a break. I wanted a, a spiritual enema, if you will. 
And uh, I've always had a uh, obsession, autodidactic obsession with uh, World War II, World War II airplanes history. I've done a lot of history, history work and things like that. So uh, I actually a catalyst for this project is sitting here. Carol Tomko, are you still? Did you? There she is. Carol Tomko uh, is an old a colleague of mine who landed a great job working in Vulcan Productions with Paul Allen, who shared my autodidactic obsession World War II airplanes. And being a good hustling director, I sensed an easy mark. So I went to Carol to say, hey, would Paul pay me to root around the National Archives and look for color footage of World War II airplanes? Simple as that. Now, can I ask you why you were looking for color footage? Because they're cool. So I brought a researcher in, you know, passed along the money to her, and she kind of gave me a report after about a week. And she said, well, there's the stuff from Okinawa, and there's this, and there's the Memphis Bell outtakes, and there's, and I said, excuse me? She said, well, the Memphis Bell outtakes. And I said, what? And she said, oh, yeah, there's 34 reels, 15 hours, everything what William Wyler shot for the Memphis Bells in the National Archives. Oh, they've always been there. Well, and I did a full stop, went back to Vulcan and said, whatever we thought we were doing, we're now going to do this. The whole idea of the cold blue pretty much crystallized in that nanosecond. And, you know, some projects you sweat and like gray state just is impossible. And other things just sort of blat out there, and this one just kind of blatted right out there. It went very quickly. But your first thought wasn't to, be, to, to do the restoration of Memphis Bell? No, the, that came later. So the thought was to do the cold blue. I, as I pitched it, I think, Carol, and you still hate the phrase, coin a squatsy with B-17s was what I wanted to make. And, you know, it's there. You know, there's certain sequences that, you know, Philip Glass doesn't come after us, or, uh, but, you know, the, it had that sort of uh, tonality to it. So um, then, because this is the National Archives, we all own it. Any of you can make the cold blue Mark II. The footage is just sitting there. Our 4K transfers are part of the National Archives. So they, we don't own them. They're not proprietary to us. So I'd made the cold blue, pretty much finished it, but I always knew the white whale was out there, and that was William Wyler and the Wyler estate. I could make the cold blue. I could do it, but should I do it? And should I do it without dealing with a Weiler estate. So after finishing the film, I've tentatively reached out to Catherine Weiler. Melanie Weiler, take a stand there. So we have a, we have Weiler, we have Weiler's into house. And very nervously. Thank you. And very nervously told Catherine, and Melanie, I think you'll say, Catherine's a force to be reckoned with, your big sister, told her what I was doing. And it was somewhat chilly response. And she said, OK, but you know what we, the family, want to do is restore the original Memphis Bell, the 1943 Memphis Bell. And we're looking, we're scow, we're looking for a print so we can restore the print. And I said, well, Catherine, I know what's there. The prints are dog shit. Pardon my French. There's two prints, one in the Imperial War Museum and one in the National Archives. And they look terrible. And when Spielberg did Five Came Back, that documentary on Netflix, the moment it premiered, I was deep into the cult blue. I watched to see, oh my God, have they seen my outtakes? Nope, they used the bad print. So the Stet version is terrible. And I said, the only way you could really restore it, and I'm not saying we're going to do this, is maybe we have the whole Memphis Bell in our outtakes. I don't know, but I, I recognize a lot of shots. And that was that. So two weeks before Christmas, we finished the cult blue early. Again, it just sort of came. 
And I had an editor, editor a couple weeks' work. So I said, look, we all know the footage. Just for fun, just for giggles, download the Memphis Bell off of YouTube, take the soundtrack, and see if you can recut it from scratch. Two weeks later, 500 shots are restored. So the Memphis Bell now has been restored. It never has looked better. It had defects in the original film, scratches that um, your dad put on the reel in, uh, in 1943 in a film lab in London. We removed those digitally. And so now the Memphis Bell is flying along with the Cold Blue reboot. And it's a, so it's, I kind of owed it, I, now that I think about it, I owed it to Weiler to give his film an equal shot because it's not fair to compare the Memphis Bell to what I did because I cheated. I brought it to 16 by 9. I wanted to restore his original film. And it's great now to do, we do occasional double bills of the two if you really aren't B-17'd out enough. Watch the Memphis Bell. Well, I actually think that you ought to do a trilogy and have the Memphis Blue be the first, the first uh, film, have Best Years of Our Lives be the middle film, and then have uh, the Cold Blue be, be the last film because I think it really shows the trajectory of these men's lives. Um, one of the reasons that I was so um, excited to come to see the film just when I had RSVP'd, not knowing that I would be actually talking to you, um, is because of William Wyler. Um, I happened to uh, teach film production at Yale and Columbia, and uh, beyond that, um, am, am very much of, um, of a cinephile of classical Hollywood, um, and William Wyler being probably, probably number one of, of my absolute favorite directors. Um, so, when, so when I saw the footage, um, Last night, actually, I, I screened um, Memphis Bell, a very terrible, terrible print of Memphis Bell, um, to get an idea of what you were actually able to do with the footage. Um, I was, um, I was really, I was really amazed that what you have done is not only restore the footage to the way that it is meant to be seen, um, probably in a way that William Wyler could only have hoped that it would have been seen. You know, one of those blue. Blue scratches out of there. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> but 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 beyond that, I feel that that your film, in some ways, is more wilder than Memphis Bell. Hmm. Did well, you feel him sitting over your shoulder as um, you were making it? I didn't watch. You know, I'd seen the Memphis Bell is imprinted in my you know DNA because you see it all the time. Um, so I knew the film, but the entire time I was doing the Coldplay, I didn't want to look at it because I didn't want him peg riding me for the production. And the only time that I actually turned to the Memphis Bell was during the takeoff sequence because I could not figure out how he put this. He shot all over, you know, all over Germany. So there was, excuse me, all over England, and they shot takeoffs everywhere. And they, I did not know how to put this stuff together. So I finally went back to the Memphis Bell, and I was like, oh, of course. You know, and I really had a healthy respect for the, you know, the, the, the cin cinematography. But I know I didn't really, they're different films. You know, I, I really wanted to, that's why I was sort of grappling with the propriety of what I was doing. Because I'm taking footage that he shot, and then making an entirely new film of it. But then Weiler had multiple cameramen shooting the footage. It wasn't like he was directing actors. He just amassed all this footage and put it together as a propaganda film in 1943, very much with the editorial control. It was done for a mission. 
and this footage still lived there. So, you know, it wasn't like I'm going to remake Mrs. Miniver or Ben-Hur or something, you know. I'll, you know it, it, but it was always, hence my call to Catherine Weiler to say, um, you, you, this is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know what you think about this. But it does feel, it does feel that, you, that you made the film that Weiler would have made as a documentary if he had not been in the military. I, you know, if you say that as a Weilerologist, uh, Melanie, I mean, Catherine said it. Am I putting words? Everybody's sort of, you know, you know, I've gotten a pretty good sense, you know. I mean, as I continue to look at it, I, you know, I, I understand now where his, uh, absolutely where his direction came for where he does the graveyard scene. Of- oh, absolutely. If you've been in the front end of a B-17, I, I went on the sound recording. We had a, we had a, we followed a B-17 around for four days with a crew from Skywalker and used the cut of the cold blue as a storyboard. So if you see a microphone, if you see a sound effect here, we have a sound effect of a B-17 there. But I got to fly from Vero Beach to Naples in the God spot in the, you know, in the plexiglass front of a B-17. And, you know, that, what, these are 75-year-old airplanes. You can't fly 200 miles an hour in plastic anymore. You know, it's something you can't do. You still can't do it technologically. Never was a good idea, I don't think. But it was great. But once you got in there and you're inside one of these things, that scene in Best Years of Our Lives where he has the hallucination, which was not storyboarded, literally. Let's, he shot that scene documentary style. He went to a B-17 graveyard and set up the actors and shot it documentary style. This was not a Hollywood shoot. He just winged it. And, you know, if you've been in a B-17, you know what that's like. But I was flying from Vero Beach to Naples. He did five missions over Nazi Germany, so it's probably a slight difference in experience. Well, one of the things I also saw last night as I was preparing for this was um, a short 23-minute documentary about the making of this film that you did. And one of the things I immediately thought was, I need to show this to my filmmaking students because it really shows you, the abs- first of all, the absolute power of sound and the separate elements in a film that have such incredible emotional impact and how that changes. Um, so, I mean, obviously you talked a little bit about, about, about the well, sound. Well, the thing that, the thing, yeah, the sound, you know, the sound design was immersive, but, and we have the man in the audience. How about that soundtrack, people? How about Richard Thompson? Because It's so I, beautifully evocative of the time period and yet completely well, timeless. You tend to watch these things, you know, you tend to watch these, you know, when you have a movie, one of the fun parts about making a feature doc is you get to, travel with it you know it's the closest thing to rock and roll that you get you get to see it work on a house you know it's like oh boy i'm gonna ask bud about shouldn't you've given that back always gets a laugh and a good audience which you were bud when he sings his opening song gets response you know if we get a, if we get people i know if it's dead silent when the opening bud song i'm always a little nervous but but i've seen richard score though you know work and i never get bored with it it's always it's just a perfect perfect wedding of music and inspiration that wasn't what what I expected. I had a very, very, I cut to a, a wholly different, much more kind of squatsy tone in the film. But the deal with Richard is if you can have the privilege of working with Richard Thompson and the, the budget that I had, you let Richard Thompson do what he wants to do. 
So I'll let you discuss which was paramount in that thing, but I, he basically went off and did the soundtrack. Richard, can you, you come up for a sec? Do you, you know, yeah, I'd love break. to ask Richard, you a question, yeah, Richard, yeah, um, yeah. or give you a microphone. I think there's one here. I know you're, you're not uncomfortable being on stage, but just bear with us. So I'd like to ask you, Richard, um, how was this in terms of scoring? You know, you've done other films as well. Um, you are a rock and roll guy. Uh, so how, how, how did you approach this? <laughs> um, I, th I think emotionally. Um... I had a very emotional reaction to the footage, and I, and I was trying to think um, how to respond to that, how to orchestrate that, and um, uh, I, I really thought fairly, fairly early in the process that, that um, some kind of chamber orchestra would do it. Uh, we, we used four horns, uh, string quartet, uh, string bass, uh, oboe clarinet, harmonica, percussion. Uh, which is a small, I mean, in Hollywood terms, that's like, that's nothing. That's very, very small. Um, but but we, we, had, we had a great engineer. We, we had what well, a fabulous um, Capital Studio B to work in, wonderful uh, Capital uh, Echo Chambers. Those drums, the drum recording, and those drums yeah. are awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this, if you're doing a soundtrack to a film like this, it's beset with, with um, Problems uh, and the main problem is, is the sound of the planes. You know, the the, the planes the planes are a very predominant sound on, on the on the soundtrack. And um, in some cases, um, the, the planes are droning in a key, or sometimes they're droning in between keys. So um, <laughs> a lot of the key choices were, were because you know the, the planes were in A or you know E flat you know the, um, <laughs> this is just like a starting point really for, for the film um, I, I, in some cases uh, the, 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 the sound of the, of the planes was tuned um, digitally um, to, to come into a key interesting stuff um, but um, you know uh, um, Eric sent me the footage um, and um, and uh, and just say, get on with it, basically. Yeah. Um, thank you, Eric. Um, well, the, we did three things. So we did the, we're among friends here and directors. So the, I did the cut with temp music and the guys done, you know, cut and done. And then I shut it all down and I sent the cut to the sound designer. I sent the cut to Richard and I sent the cut to the restoration team of two people. Did all the film restoration, both working one in his condo and one in his basement, who did all the film restoration. And we reconvened in three months. And I, had a, I was obsessed with the sound design and the restoration I let them deal with. And Richard had the music and I didn't hear the music until it was recorded. And I wasn't at the sessions. It really was recorded and they started sending me tracks and it was just oh my god and it was such a kind of jump from what i had envisioned and what i attempt it it, it was it it i admit when i first heard it i was like well this isn't the movie i made it's different and then the more i started hearing it it was like this is really amazing and it's like wow this is a better movie and and it's like a way better movie and I had nothing to do with it as the director, other than leaving Richard alone. So don't let that get around to my other directors, but it really was, it's all on Richard here. Mm. Um, well, you took on, so, so having, um, having um, just been sent the, the raw film by Eric, um, I, I, I kind of composed wall to wall 
uh, because it seemed to need it. Um, and and I, I was unaware of what sounds were going to be added to it. So uh, I, I probably composed 75 minutes of music, uh, and then we selectively uh, took stuff away rather than added. So, so uh, that was the, the process, really. Because first it worked, we, we alternated. Um, we did a test screening at Skywalker. A guy named Ben Burt is sort of the guy, the, the professor emeritus, and Ben is the Star Wars, created the original, is a legend of sound design. And he attended the screening. And so we had a, the benefit of a charrette with the, all these, Brad Bird wasn't there, but was in the hood with all these people. And he said a couple things. One, you know, George and I watched, much watched Memphis Bell 30 times when they were doing Star Wars to get that sort of the sounds and the uh, cutting sequence down. And then his, his suggestion was that the music was too scored and, you know, it, it, it was, you know, too scored. And then I went back to Richard and we discussed it and we took the music out in the air during the scenes that don't really need a lot of support. And then the beautiful score was in the, uh, you know, the other chapters, the more quiet chapters. But it wasn't that literal. And I'd say all the music's Richard and 80, you know, what, 75% is where you put it in the original thing? Um, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. See, I, do, I always, I'm wondering, when we see it together, I'm always thinking, ooh, he's mad that I moved that cue around. So, uh. Well, it's, it's the price of... of uh of doing film scores it is um, you're a slave to the process. Um, well, speaking of slave to the process, Richard scored, uh, improvised the score to Grizzly Man with, with Werner. And not that it, they hadn't, it was my first film with Werner, as I don't know if you know, the something of a reputation for being Werner. And um, Richard had never worked with him before, and we had no time to do it, so the idea was we're just going to improvise the soundtrack. So I put Richard... And then I thought, you know, this isn't stressful enough. I'm going to make a documentary on it. So I brought a documentary. We filmed a documentary of the making of the sessions. And totally different animal, totally. And that was my first. So compared to that, this was Yeah, but, but it's, it's very unusual to, to improvise a film score. I mean, it, it really happens. But, but um, I, I mean, I was in the situation where Werner also insisted on being on the studio floor. Um, so no, I think on the studio floor, or hovering uh, over you. Oh, I'm, I'm hovering over my shoulder. So, so there's a camera here, and, and there's Werner over here, and um, so, so somehow they'd say, "Okay, can you make this next cue 13 seconds long?" Gentlemen, I have to ask you: Did you not watch *Burden of Dreams* before you started working with Herzog? Oh yeah, no, I knew exactly what I was getting into. <laughs> no, I, I look, I was okay. supposed to direct. You know, I was, I had found. You mentioned the similarity earlier with Grizzly yes, Man. Yes, yes, let's talk about this. I why, found why the treasure I... trove of Grizzly Man. That was my stuff that I found and got the rights to, and I was going to direct it. And it's a, I won't get into the How I Met Werner story, but he pretty much hijacked the project from me and said, I want to direct this film. And I'm like, okay, dude, take it. I don't want it. Uh, but but I did I... it because I wanted to see what Herzog would do with the material. But this idea of finding footage and creating something new from it um, has sort of become your life's work. Well, God, I hope not. But the um, three, three projects that have had it was Grizzly Man, which was the death spiral of an amateur filmmaker, Gray State, death spiral of amateur filmmaker, except he was a director who wound up murdering his uh, uh, wife and five-year-old daughter. Feel bad movie of 2017, folks. Check it out. Um, and then this, which is William Wyler's material. So if one wanted to do that, yes, but then I've done lots of other stuff. But I understand, but, but 
what responsibility do you feel to other people's footage? Well, then? we've discussed it. You know, it's it's a, it's an it's Treadwell. What I do think I would have said to William Wyler, to Timothy Treadwell, maybe not David Crowley, uh, but was, did I do your work justice? You know, what, what do you think? Is this the film? You is it honest? And even David Crowley, his family, his brother, his sister, his uh, father you know, worked with me on the film, and his friends, most importantly, all said David would have loved this, and that kind of creeps me out. But I have thought about it, and I've written about it. I did a column in Talk House called Collaborating with Ghosts about this process of collaborating with ghosts. Now, this is the most, by far, the most benign version of it, because it wasn't... William Wyler shot this, but the Memphis Bell evolved. It wasn't quite the same thing. But, yeah, you know, you, it, it, it is... It, it has crossed my mind. Can we talk a little bit about the visual, about the color? Um, when you think of... Are you, oh, thank you. Slinking off stage. Okay, there you go. Thanks, Richard. When you think of... When, when you think of old-fashioned documentaries of newsreels of World War II footage. You think of black and white. Um, and there actually was quite a bit of very cool um, color footage that was shot during this time. Um, and it's so interesting, if you think about how people think about black and white, this used to be as sort of the, the arbitrator of truth that something had to be black and white in order to be true, a documentary style. Um, the New York Times was the last newspaper that actually, you know, as all the news that's fit to print, the last major newspaper that actually went to color photographs because they didn't want it to look like the comic pages. They wanted it to be, you know, serious. And, and, um, and, then, and then when... Um, footage, uh, when, when Spielberg, for example, made Schindler's List, uh, he insisted that it be in black and white at a time when films simply were not selling in black and white. I mean, it, it was, they, they told him it was, it was a death sentence for him to make Schindler's List in black and white, not only about the Holocaust, but about, you know, but being in black and white, the, the, it would die at the box office. Um, he went ahead and did that because he said all of the Holocaust films he had ever seen were in black and white. Then when he went to make Schindler's List, and I read this somewhere. Private so, Ryan. I'm sorry, Private Ryan. When he went to make Private Ryan, and I don't know if this is actually true or, or a legend, but it's a good one nonetheless. Um, he was going to make that in black and white as well because he had seen... Um, Robert Kappa's photographs. I mean, yes, yeah, the, yes, and yes. He, the, every 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 World War II film he had seen had been in black and white. Well, it was Robert Kappa shot twenty nine pictures in Omaha Beach, and like William Wyler, wrecked it in the lab. And the thirty photographs that were outtakes are the emblematic Omaha Beach D Day pictures. And if you look at those pictures, and you look at uh, the opening to Save It Private Ryan, it's like nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. But apparently it was his father who said to him, you know, I was in World War II. I fought there. It was not in black and white. If you want, if you want the immediate experience, it needs to be in color. And so, hence, he went ahead and he shot Private Ryan in color, but then he desaturated it almost 80%. 
And um, I found it really interesting watching uh, this, the, the terrible print of um, uh, Memphis Bell last night thinking, wow, this really looks like Private Ryan. And in, 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 its, in its faded, and, and then I started thinking about memory and what we, what well, we associate with memory. Well, there's a genre now that's come out. Uh, uh, the, I think the um, twist that got the Peter Jackson film so much attention in December was this concept of black and white, something you traditionally see with this perspective being brought into color with submersive sound design. And when I started on the Cold Blue Trail a couple years ago, I had this vision of this thing, what I called big screen immersive history. I was really influenced by Dunkirk, and I wanted to do Dunkirk surround sound, abstract, and have that sort of approach to a war documentary, except I had real footage. So, you know, my regret is we didn't get Cold Blue out in theaters. We premiered Cold Blue a year ago in June. Uh, Jackson's premiered October. And Apollo 11 came out in January. So technically, if you're looking at the rule books, we got out first. We didn't get out first commercially, which I regret, because I think this has that kind of... The idea to use color to get to your question was to construct a time machine. I didn't want anything between the viewer and the material, which is why you don't see the guys till the end of the film. And the Richard's music carries you through. It was really to hypnotize people and to go back in the past. If, I don't know if anyone's seen a movie called Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve. It's the best time travel movie. But he, gets, he goes back in time and then he's propelled forward. He loses his connection with the past because he finds a modern penny in his pocket. And I didn't want to have any pennies in this film. I didn't want to have anything that ripped you out of the past and brought you forward until we meet the guys and to... because. The audience, I'm hope, is thinking, you know, when they see them, it's like, oh, yeah, who are those guys? And we wanted, plus I had to re make 72 minutes long, so there was, but we only shot, uh, I shot about 10 minutes per guy. We didn't film their interviews. I made the decision to do it audio only because I could get closer to their good ear and do a more immersive, better interview. So our procedure, our protocol, we, and you can only get an hour with these guys, hour and a half tops. We'd arrive, we'd set up, it was me and a sound, me and Peter, the producer, that was it. We drove cross country, the two of us, rented a car from LA to Baltimore, stopping off. I'd go in, I'd get my trusty, as featured in Gray State, giant laptop. I'd show them 10 minutes of footage, my, some of my restored test footage, to get them wired in. I filmed that part, and then uh, shut it all down, and then sat down and talked to them. So they were already vibed into the moment, and because I knew what I had, I knew what footage I had, I was able to, uh, well, what do the contrails look like? You know, do you have a dog? You know, I, I basically knew what, knew what they were talking about. So there was kind of a very, and it wasn't about what they did. It was how did, it, how did you feel doing it? You know, it was much more, again, an immersive thing. Tell us what it was like. What do those things look like? And I'd have to say if there was one image that I had, I, that contrail sequence, when I saw the contrail footage in the Memphis outtakes as I was putting us together, it was like that, you know, that. Because Weiler just would film it. He didn't cut it in 1943. He wouldn't just let a shot of a contrail go, an abstract contrail shot. But what's great is his cameramen were clearly like, wow. And they were shooting these images, probably knowing you know, that, that none of that footage, very little of that footage is in the Memphis Bell. And some of the really abstract, arty shots, like the Dawn, those shots of the planes, the B-17s and Dawn, none of that's in the Memphis Bell. 
and yet and yet it ended up looking like Lenny Riefenstahl's opening. Well, yeah, they shot you know they shot it beautifully. That footage of the the stuff at the open with the, the women and the defense plant workers, the home the, the morale tour. Again, I'd again we're among friends here. I'd like to say this was just conceived as a metaphor for the America of today versus the past. And no, I had this amazing footage that I could not figure out what to do with, and I needed to dimension to make seventy two minutes. So I thought, oh, well, I have a lot of exposition to get out, and this footage is great. Let's just throw that at the top of the film with the exposit with the cards, and then do an overture, which is the, where we, you know, he died while his son was born. That with that shot to really get you focused, and then the rest was just chapter, chapter, chapter. I mean, it was ridiculously easy to put it together. This one was, and it isn't because of any expertise in math of the, the director. It was because it kind of had to be put together this way. We had this, this kind of had to go here, this had to go here. You needed to put all this together. So it kind of made itself in a lot of ways, which is really unusual for me. I'm much, things usually are much more complicated. And I love your love letter in it to, to filmmaking itself where you you use the, the tails and you use the sprocket holes there. Um, and there's, I, I mean, I think it's quite brilliant that you do, you know, you could cut to, you could cut to the man with, with the tears in his eyes, you know, saying, and, and that was the day that well, the son was born and yet you use the entail. It was so, well, you know, really it, nicely. Well, the chap, Charlie Chaplin, had a, you may have heard this line. He said, you know, great line, every, every comedy director should say this. If what you're doing is funny, you don't have to be funny doing it. And, you know, yeah. And my, Nelson's th variation of that is if what, if what you're doing is dramatic, you don't have to be self-dramatic doing it. So if you have this amazing footage, it's just so intrinsically glorious, you don't need to sort of trowel it on and go for the, you know, I made enough bad television history documentaries where you always have to go for the thing. Um, I found the color in it so achingly beautiful, um, and and putting Kodachrome. And, and, you know, but also but putting me in the moment, in, in, in some ways it got me to thinking about this idea of, of my own memories of tragic things. And I, you know, I often thought like, well, what, how would I feel if somebody showed me a photo, a faded photograph of the plane going through the Twin Towers at 9-11? I mean, it's, it's so connected for me and puts me back in the place. I mean, I even, I walk out some, some, September mornings and say, oh, this is a 9-11 day, you know, in terms of the color and the vividness. And I think that, you know, getting that back um, is, is, is such a service to getting us back in time. Well, it's funny, I did a film on 9-11 called 9-11, The Final Hours, which is all set on September 10th. Every scrap of footage of 9-11, tourist photographs. There was a woman artist in the 96th floor who shot the thunderstorm that night. Uh, you know, we, we made a film based on that, which again takes the iconography of 9-11. And the only thing we didn't show was we didn't show the planes hitting. It was audio only. You know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, we were very careful to, to show, take 9-11 through that filter and be really rigorous on it. And that ties into kind of the cold blue in some way where you kind of dance what brung you. So the 9-11 film, because there was so little footage, you know, dance rehearsals in the plaza, it enforced a it enforced a rigor on the storytelling. So all you had to do is just say, "Well, we have this. 
let's not mess with it. Oh, and the other footage we had was, was a photographer and uh, graveyard shift engineer who was obsessed. It was an, from Estonia, and he'd just come over. You know, Borat, the engineer, who took all these weird pictures of every nook and cranny of the uh, uh, of the towers, offices, people's like desktops, just because he was fascinated. And we discovered a thousand of these pictures and used those as a thread. And again, they just worked. And, you know, so the film, once you sort of get this Timothy Treadwell's footage, I mean, honestly, yeah, Grizzly Man's this and that, it's not too fucking hard to do a movie when you have 90 hours of that guy on camera in that proximity. Even I could have directed that film, and I was going to. Now, Herzog lifted it up, but the actual footage is so powerful, which I think is why in these, this world of acquired footage documentary, it's, in, it's always, well, is that a legitimate documentary if the footage is there, if you're not shooting it yourself? And I would say knowing what to do with it is, 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 is Well, it's is not something. What's Up, Tiger Lily. Well, don't, let's not diminish that classic, but um, <laughs> um, I was just at the History Channel actually pitching a film involving the Mystery Science Theater guys t uh, today, so it shows you uh, thinking of riffing on funny movies, but I digress. Eric, thank you so much well, for this you. gift. Thank you all for coming out on a Thursday night. Um, this documentary series at the DGA, I think, is incredibly important, and, um, and hopefully... Uh, demand it, demand more of it, um, because um, it really is, um, not only is it educational, but it's an emotionally evocative evening. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from the DGA's documentary series screenings, check out episode 201, which features director Peter Bogdanovich discussing his documentary, The Great Buster, with Chuck Workman. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.